this is, I've asked people ask me in book reading, you're, you're, you're too discouraging for our young people. But it's, it's like racism is permanent, you know, which is I think that, that, that telling the truth as you see it is never discouraging. It, it can be enlightening. Things have changed, but you're saying at, at its root it hasn't, that's, that's and right. it can't. And if the things have taken taken different forms, uh, the subordination takes different forms okay. than it did. Okay. But, so, uh, but this is a, it's not because all white people are equal or bad. It's because the system requires that there be this outgroup. And, and in America, that's black people. I think I see a great deal of satisfaction and some degree of happiness in people who have determined to spend as much as they can on recognizing bad stuff and making it better. Welcome to the Space Traders Podcast. My name's Ray Sean. I'm just someone who's been impacted by some of the writings of the civil rights lawyer and activist turned legal scholar and tenured Harvard professor named Dr. Derek Bell. If you've never heard of Dr. Derek Bell, his name's been popular recently, both famously or infamously, because he's considered one of the founders of what's known as critical race theory, which we'll get to later. But critical race theory, or CRT, has been making the headlines regularly these days. And uh, in a context where people are having a lot of conversations about racism in America and the past history of America's racism, there's been a lot of confusion surrounding critical race theory, what it is, what it isn't, uh, including the ideas of its founders. And so many people, especially in the field of legal studies, uh, they've known who this man, Dr. Derek Bell, is, uh, and they've regarded him as one of America's best legal scholars. But I came across Derek Bell after I heard about one of the stories that he wrote in his book titled Faces at the Bottom of the Well, a story that was called The Space Traders, which is the name of this podcast. And after I read the story and after I finished the entire book, I was locked in. I wanted to know more about this man, Derek Bell, as a lawyer and as a scholar and read more about his perspective on racism in America. And so listen, I'll just state it up front. I'm not a lawyer or a CRT scholar or academic, but I don't think that you need to be in order to understand Dr. Bell's perspective on racism in America. Bell's parables about the intersection of race and law and history as it concerns black people in America, there's something that everybody can learn from. And so the purpose of this podcast isn't really to define or defend critical race theory as a tradition or an academic movement, although it'll definitely get touched on, especially in this episode. But really the purpose of the podcast is to just reflect on Bell's stories because I think he writes them in, in this way to teach not just law students, but everybody, something about race and racism and the black experience in America. And I think Bell has a, a unique perspective that, that really needs to be considered and grappled with if we're really gonna understand critical race theory and distinguish it from other ways of talking about racism, but also if we're gonna understand the plight of black people in this country. So basically, this episode is just an introduction to who is Derek Bell, the man, the lawyer, the civil rights activist, and what did he believe about racism in America and its role concerning the law? I'm reading a lot of this, so please bear with me. I want these episodes to feel more conversational, but this episode is definitely going to feel a little bit heavier on information. So again, please bear with me. We're going to talk a little bit about who is Derek Bell, how his beliefs and his perspectives and experiences as a civil rights lawyer shaped sort of the, the foundational beliefs to what critical race theory is. And then we'll talk a little bit about just his perspectives and his views on racism in America, and then share some Christian reflections at the end uh, to sort of bring this back 
unpack and, and uh, help us to think through what is critical race theory and then how we can engage with Derek Bell in the stories that we're going to be looking at. So who is Derrick Bell? Derrick Bell was a lawyer, a legal scholar, a professor, and an activist in the civil rights movement. He was married to his wife, Jewel Harrison Bell, for 30 years, and they had three sons. He was the first black law professor to receive tenure at Harvard Law School, and he was the founder of the academic movement known as critical race theory. In addition to all these things, but certainly not least, he was a black man in America and a man of faith and integrity. Born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to his father, Derrick Bell Sr. and his mother, Ada Elizabeth Bell, in 1930, Derrick Bell was the oldest of four children. And after graduating from high school in Pittsburgh, he attended Duquesne University, becoming the first member of his family to attend college. While at Duquesne, Bell was a member of the Reserve Officers Training Corps. And after graduating, he later served in the Air Force for two years, serving one year in Korea. And upon returning, he received his law degree from the University of Pittsburgh Law School, being the only black student in the program. After graduating at the top of his class with no real job offers, Bell worked at the Justice Department for the Civil Rights Division. There he ran into conflict as he, an existing member of the NAACP, was eventually asked by his superiors to resign his $2 membership so that he wouldn't potentially compromise the department. Bell understood, but he refused and he eventually resigned from his position in the DOJ, but not before his superiors attempted to humiliate him by moving his desk into the hallway and reducing his caseload. So after refusing to resign from the NAACP, Bell actually went on to work for them. He worked with the Legal Defense and Educational Fund for the Pittsburgh office, which worked to undo segregation in schools and integrate spaces in the city in the years following the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. And during this time, Bell worked under the renowned civil rights attorney and future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Later on, Bell transferred to Mississippi, a place where there was massive resistance to the Brown decision. And there he continued his work with the NAACP by supervising over 300 school desegregation cases, including the well-known case of James Meredith, who'd eventually become the first black student to be admitted to the University of Mississippi. During that time in the South, in a place filled with the racial hostility of whites, Bell worked alongside of civil rights activists and NAACP field secretary Medgar Evers. And Bell was actually with Evers the weekend before he was assassinated on a Wednesday morning outside of his home. Bell said that he offered to stay and continue working with Evers through the weekend, but Evers told him to go home and be with his family. And shortly thereafter, Bell received the call that his coworker and friend had been murdered. Bell went on to become a professor at Harvard Law School in 1969, and after two years there, he became the first black law professor to receive tenure. In 1980, Bell became the dean at the law school at the University of Oregon, where he stayed for about five years, encouraging the university to hire more persons of color. After a position in the law school came open, Bell recommended an Asian woman for the position who ended up being third in the choice of candidates. But when the top two individuals chosen for the position, who were white, declined, instead of extending an offer to the qualified Asian woman who Bell recommended, the faculty decided that this woman wasn't good enough for the position, which led to Bell resigning from his position in protest. In 1986, Bell returned to Harvard only to run into a similar issue with discriminatory hiring practices when the faculty declined to grant tenure to two professors of color, one of them being a black woman. This time, Bell organized hunger strikes and sit-ins before he eventually took a leave of absence in protest. 
And when his leave eventually ran out, he left Harvard permanently in 1992, becoming the first professor to quit a law school faculty in protest of discriminatory hiring practices. This caught the attention of the nation and even gained the praise of a young president, not of the United States, but the president of the Harvard Law Review, a man named Barack Obama, who called Bell the Rosa Parks of legal education. And so after leaving Harvard, Bell became a professor at the NYU School of Law, where he continued to teach and write on racism and civil rights until he passed away in 2011. Critical race theory. There's the three words that everybody's talking about today, so I won't go on without mentioning them. Derrick Bell is one of the founders of what's known famously or infamously as critical race theory. Now, critical race theory, or CRT, is an academic movement or tradition that took shape in the 1980s that initially flowed out of critical legal studies. And so I'll get into some descriptions of CRT in a minute, but for Derrick Bell, the foundations of CRT started during his time litigating cases after the Brown ruling, which caused him to question some of the outcomes of Brown and other race-related legal cases about whether or not equal education or equality or the goals of the civil rights movement were actually happening and progressing for black people? Or were these well-known breakthrough cases only new doorways through which the previous structures of racial discrimination could be preserved or left unremediated? So briefly, let's talk a little bit about CRT. What is critical race theory? Well, critical race theory isn't a fully defined school of thought, so limiting it to a single definition is difficult to do. One of the leading scholars in the field of CRT, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, says that critical race theory isn't a noun, but a verb. She also said this, quote, CRT is not so much an intellectual unit filled with natural stuff, theories, themes, practices, and the like, but one that is dynamically constituted by a series of contestations and convergences pertaining to the ways that racial power is understood and articulated in the post-civil rights era, end quote. So here are a few more descriptions of the movement and definitions that I feel have been helpful to my understanding of the academic field of CRT. The first one is from Richard Delgado and John Stefanik, two scholars who worked alongside of Bell during the formative years of CRT. They say this, quote, the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, context, group and self-interest, and even feelings in the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law." End quote. 
Dr. Nathan Luis Cartagena, an assistant professor of philosophy at Wheaton University, he defines CRT as this. He says, quote, critical race theory is a legal movement aimed at understanding, resisting, and remediating how U.S. law and legal institutions, such as law schools, have fostered and perpetuated racism and white supremacy, end quote. And lastly, but certainly not least, Bradley Mason, who isn't a CRT scholar, but is someone who's done a ton of research on CRT and has written several outstanding articles on it. He gives this definition. Quote, critical race theory is, at bottom, the radical abolitionist and civil rights tradition critically transformed to address a post-civil rights legal era rooted in the liberal ideology of colorblindness and equal opportunity, which have together preserved and legitimated the continuation of racially subordinated circumstances, end quote. So in short, Critical race theory is an analytical tool in a legal movement used to look at the outcomes of the civil rights movement and offer a critical response about what those legal victories actually achieve for black people or marginalized groups in America when it comes to freedom and equality, as seen in things like education, wealth, housing, employment, and so forth. So let me state it again. This podcast isn't about CRT specifically. So if you want to know more about critical race theory as a movement and understand more about its observations and ideas, there is plenty of information out there and available and literature, starting with the works of its founders and legal scholars who have been working in the field of CRT. Read the primary sources, please. Critical race theory isn't just confined to racism as it pertains to blacks and whites. It's actually made up of several theories and traditions that speak to many racialized communities. And it's important to note that many of those movements pull from different traditions and experiences. And so as CRT pertains to someone like Dr. Derek Bell, he focuses much of his research and observations on the racial dynamics between blacks and whites in America. And he's influenced largely, even primarily, by the black abolitionist and civil rights tradition. So contrary to what many people, mainly people, white people outside of the field of CRT, contrary to what they believe about Bell's scholarship stemming directly from what's known as critical theory or Frankfurt School Marxism or white and European philosophers, Bell actually wasn't influenced by any of those ideas. Professor Tommy Curry, a philosophy professor at Southern Illinois University and disciple of Derrick Bell, he said this about Bell's being misunderstood and who and what his actual influences were. Curry says, quote, whites attempting to understand the works of Bell align him with what they take to be radical figures in the Western tradition, like Mikhail Foucault, Karl Marx, and Jacques Derrida, instead of confront the racism inherent in assuming that it is only through white thinkers that black thoughts can be understood or philosophical. To my claim that his work should be understood as a continuation of black thought, exclusive of white influence, Bell, who Curry interviewed back in 2007, Bell replied, quote, you have it exactly right. I consider myself the academic counterpart of Errol Garner, the late jazz pianist from my hometown, Pittsburgh, who never learned to read music, fearing, as I understand it, that it would ruin his style. I think there must be value in Marxist and other writings, but I did not really read them in college and have had little time since. I'm writing this in Pittsburgh, where I've been celebrating my 50th law school reunion from Pitt Law School. I do care more about the thought and writings and actions of Du Bois, Robeson, Douglas, et al. 
I think during my talk at UCLA, I read from the 1935 essay by Ralph Bunch about the futility of using law to overcome racism. It made more sense than so much of the theoretical writings on law, past and present, that I can barely understand and have great difficulty connecting with my experience. And you are right. At almost 77 years old, I do not care to write in ways that whites can vindicate. End quote. So in the same tradition as black thinkers and activists such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, MLK and Malcolm X. As a civil rights lawyer, Derek Bell questioned the legal outcome of Brown versus the Board of Education and what it actually achieved for black students. Although it formally ended segregation in schools, was the aim of Brown just visible integration and racial mixing in classrooms, or was it equal education for black students and remediation of past injustices? When he noticed that black students, although attending white schools and never vice versa, weren't experiencing equal treatment in those schools or even getting a better education, Bell thought that his clients weren't getting what was promised to them in the Brown decision. He also questioned how and why the Brown ruling passed when it did in 1954, during a time when the United States in the midst of the Cold War was being criticized by communist countries for its racism and segregation practices. And in addition to this, the, the vagueness of Brown's language of all deliberate speed a year after its initial ruling concerning the enforcement of the decision, it revealed from Bell's perspective the courts prioritizing the interests of those who opposed desegregation, even as it was a ruling that promoted equality for blacks. So was Brown only passed because it was in the best interest of the white majority to appear more progressive in the global community in the fight against communism? Was the language of all deliberate speed only included to allow opponents to desegregate on their own timetable? Whose interest was the Brown's decision really prioritizing? It was questions like these that eventually led Bell to ask more questions and even notice a recurring pattern about some of the biggest legal victories in our country pertaining to racial equality and freedom for blacks. He argued that laws intended to achieve racial equality prioritize the interests of the white majority, and even while they achieved some measure of progress for blacks, they also became conduits to preserving racial subordination. He writes in one of his stories, quote, American society periodically produces a symbol of redemption in the wake of unspeakable cruelty or crippling racial discrimination. At the national level, the symbol is usually a policy with liberating potential, end quote. So going all the way back to the Emancipation Proclamation, Bell argues that although there's been some progress made through laws promoting racial equality, retrenchment or backlash opposition and the undermining of progress by whites is a simultaneous reality that often continues to relegate blacks to a subordinate position for different reasons all throughout different eras. And more than anything, these legal policies with the potential to bring about freedom and equality for black people more often than not just serve as symbols of hollow reconciliation or justice and equality that are never fully realized or obtained. All this is what Bell would eventually call the principle of interest convergence. At the core of critical race theory, there are several different tenets or observations that scholars make about racism in America, and, and interest convergence is one of the ideas, to quote Bell, that both historically and particularly in the civil rights context, quote, the interest of blacks in achieving racial equality will be accommodated only when it converges with the interests of whites, end quote. And when black interests are out of alignment with white interests, or even when they threaten white interests or the interests of the majority in the pursuit of equality and freedom, that's when retrenchment or opposition or white backlash happens. Thank you.
So I think there's one more important influence on Bell that's worth noting. We saw how Bell was influenced by the black abolitionist and civil rights movement, and as a civil rights lawyer that litigated over 300 anti-discrimination cases, Bell saw firsthand the ineffectiveness of the Brown decision to provide equal opportunities for black students in education. So not to add to what Bell himself has said here, but I'd argue that in addition to these influences, as a professing follower of Jesus, Bell was influenced to write and speak about racism in the way that he does because of his faith and how the Christian God has historically spoken into the struggle of oppressed peoples. All throughout his writings, Bell weaves and incorporates and includes Bible verses, gospel hymns, and the presence of spiritual figures. The title of one of Bell's most well-known books is taken from Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 20, which says, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. And so in his book, Ethical Ambition, Bell talks about growing up in the Protestant black AME and Presbyterian church. He later embraced more of a theologically liberal understanding of Christianity, and he goes on to say that, quote, For much of my life, I have been swept along, lifted up really, by the sense that I was part of a religious tradition that earned salvation by doing good works, trying to live a good life. My belief in Christ did not limit me to Christian doctrine. On the contrary, while I did not fully appreciate it at the time, what most attracted me to the teachings of Christ was his courage and his vision of racial inclusiveness. The teachings of Jesus were revelatory and revolutionary. Christianity should embrace, not exclude, end quote. He also said that his faith is closely tied to music, particularly spirituals and gospel hymns, which is evidence more than anything in his book, Gospel Choirs. This was a man shaped by his belief in God and aspects of Jesus's life and ministry. And so Dr. Bell's Christianity played an influential part in his speaking about racial justice, but there's another similarity between Bell and Jesus, and that's in their use of parables. Dr. Bell's writings largely focus on the issues of race and civil rights, and he's written several books and scholarly articles on the subject. He wrote the book that law schools still use on race, racism in America, which is its title, and several of his books are written in the form of parables and allegory to describe the black experiences with racism in America. In these allegories, Bell interacts with a fictional civil rights lawyer named Geneva Crenshaw, a black woman and supernatural lawyer prophet whose stories and chronicles offer insight into understanding race and its role in the law. It's also worth noting that many of Bell's parables are fictional stories containing hypothetical laws, policies, and illustrations. He never meant for them to be taken seriously as far as the legal doctrine that he proposes in them is concerned. His aim in telling stories in this way is to explain the concept of interest convergence and how it's seen directly or indirectly when it comes to racism and the law. But in these stories, you also get to see how Bell's views on racism in the post-civil rights era are somewhat controversial because they don't align with and even challenge the typical conservative and liberal perspectives about race that we so often hear in this country. For example, political conservatives are often quick to dismiss any conversations about race because it doesn't fit the post-civil rights race-neutral ideal of colorblindness, where taking race into any consideration is wrong. But Bell's views also challenge and don't align with the liberal perspective that believes that integration is the best way to solve the issues of racism as well, which is more often than not black people assimilating into the existing white-dominated structures and individualistic culture of America. Again, the concept of interest convergence is woven all throughout Bell's stories. And when it comes to his use of parables, parables might be one of the best and most effective methods to grasp a better understanding of this concept. 
Remember again, Bell says that interest convergence says that black interests in achieving racial equality will only be accommodated when they're aligned to white interests. But if white people have something to lose or if their uh, black interests are viewed as a threat or jeopardizing the order and structure of white supremacy, then many times what happens is retrenchment. So although Bell's views might have been controversial in its critique of both liberal and conservative perspectives concerning race in America, Bell was no controversial figure. Aside from his protests at Harvard in the early 90s and his being painted as the law school version of Jeremiah Wright by right-wing conservatives in 2012, all for hugging President Obama in a video, many of his students and peers describe him as being humble, gentle, soft-spoken, and accessible. So with the way that CRT is being demonized today, you'd think Bell was some type of militant black revolutionary in America advocating for violence, and some would even try to paint his views as racist. But here's probably the most controversial thing Derrick Bell ever said. Racism is permanent. It's the subtitle of his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. And this concept is so problematic for people because in a liberal society that believes that it's post-racial or very close to it, a statement like this runs contrary to the preferred and dominant narrative that our nations largely overcome racism. Some people misinterpret Bell's belief in racism's permanence to mean that all white people are inherently and irredeemably racist or that nothing's changed at all in our country. Others think that this statement is the worst kind of cynicism and pessimism and ultimately leads to despair. So why does Bell actually make a statement like this? Well, let me start here. Remember that Derrick Bell was, before tenure, before Harvard, and before being one of the nation's foremost legal scholars, a civil rights activist and attorney. He had witnessed what was, for black folks, the greatest Supreme Court victory of all time in Brown versus the Board of Education, only to watch as the courts and the backlash and opposition of whites undermined it for years, eventually rendering it a mirage for racial equality. In an interview with the Boston Globe, Bell said this about his time in Mississippi. He said, quote, I learned a lot about evasiveness and how racists could use a system to forestall equality. I also learned a lot riding those dusty roads and walking into those sullen hostile courts in Jackson, Mississippi. It just seems that unless something's pushed, unless you litigate, nothing happens, end quote. Bell also recounts this experience in Mississippi during the summer of 1964, where he spoke with an elderly activist named Biona McDonald about her courage and persistence in working for civil rights, even as she and others faced the sometimes violent intimidation, backlash, and job loss and opposition from whites. Bell says, quote, Mrs. McDonald looked at me and said slowly, seriously, I can't speak for everyone, but as for me, I'm an old woman. I lives to harass white folks. End quote. Now, there are some people who've attributed these words directly to Bell as if he was literally advocating for the intimidation and harassment of white people. He never said this, and Biona McDonald never meant this. She was an old woman, not Batman. Rather, Bell continues saying that, quote, she didn't say she risked everything because she hoped or expected to win out over the whites who held all the economic and political power and the guns as well. Rather, she recognized that powerless as she was, she had and intended to use courage and determination as a weapon to, in her words, harass white folks. 
And listen, I'll just go on because if you believe that Bell would affirm this statement and the permanence of racism, believing that all whites are racist, he says, quote, as I do throughout this book, faces at the bottom of the well, Mrs. McDonald assumed that I knew that not all whites are racist, but that the opposition she was committed to resist was racial and emanated from whites. She did not even hint that her harassment would topple those whites well entrenched power. Rather, her goal was defiance and its harassing effect was likely more potent precisely because she did what she did without expecting to topple her oppressors. She avoided discouragement and defeat because at the point that she determined to resist her oppression, she was triumphant." End quote. So let me just say it again. Neither Biona McDonald nor Derrick Bell was advocating for the literal harassment of white people. Rather, what they were saying is that in the fight against racism in this country, fighting racism isn't just about personal one-to-one relational interactions. It's about power and fighting against the opposition that aimed at treating her, Bell, and all other blacks in America as second-class citizens. So what does this statement about the permanence of racism mean? Well, in the first chapter of Faces at the Bottom of the Well, Bell writes, quote, I want to set forth this proposition, which will be easier to reject than refute. Black people will never gain full equality in this country. Even those Herculean efforts we hail as successful will produce no more than temporary peaks of progress, short-lived victories that slide into irrelevance as racial patterns adapt in ways that maintain white dominance. This is a hard-to-accept fact that all history verifies. We must acknowledge it, not as a sign of submission, but as an act of ultimate defiance. End quote. So Bell's belief that racism was permanent was more of a posture than a prophecy. Again, this was his opinion. If anything, he believed that racism was predictable, especially when it came to legislation that sought to further the cause of black equality. He saw the same pattern of racist and resistant responses over and over and over again in legislation spanning from the Emancipation Proclamation all the way to affirmative action. But this isn't a pessimistic or overly cynical perspective. Fighting racism from this perspective for Bell is strategic. Bell believes that it protects people from despair and keeps any victories in the proper perspective. It's to engage the pursuit of black rights and freedom from a place of unbothered defiance, not because it gains power over whites or its own kind of black supremacy, but because it's the morally righteous response in the face of wickedness. In one interview, Bell says that if people or our country approached fighting racism in this way, then it would be similar to how the addict assumes the same posture to fight their addictions one day at a time. So, wow, that was a lot. Uh, Thanks for sticking with me. I know that was a lot of information, but hopefully uh, we've learned something about who Derrick Bell was um, just as a a lawyer and a civil rights activist and attorney and even some of the questions that shaped him as far as sort of the foundations of critical race theory and interest convergence. So, again, these are his opinions. These are his well-researched and well-thought-out opinions um, that, again, I think we have to grapple with. You can agree with him. You can disagree with him. Uh, but this is a man of integrity. This is a man who was shaped by even his faith uh, and the, the life and ministry of Jesus to speak against racism in the way that he does. 
And I think it's important for us to consider his views. And so, again, whether you agree with him or not, uh, I just want to take a moment to share some some sort of Christian reflections and some things that I, I've been thinking through as uh, I've engaged with Bell's works and uh, especially interest convergence. Uh, so listen, I, I don't want to Jesus juke this or spiritualize it because ultimately Bell doesn't really make any of these connections that I'm about to make with his principle of interest convergence. But uh, the Bible says a lot about our interests as people, our sinful interests, especially as they pertain to power. And so honestly, one of the first things that I think about when I hear about this idea of interest convergence is Philippians chapter two, verses three and four, which says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So we know this is written to Christians, right? And uh, these verses, they asked me to cause the question because especially knowing that in light of the fact that many white professing Christians in this country were behind some of the worst kind of racism and racial opposition after every single one of these major legal decisions that promoted civil rights and equality for black people, in light of that context, the question that I'm asking is, what would it have looked like if these white people, who a lot of them claim to follow Jesus, put the collective interests of blacks and racially marginalized people above their own? Would we have seen some of the devastating backlash that we've witnessed historically in our country from everything from the response to Reconstruction to the Jim Crow era's uh, sinful and, and racist laws to the violent resistance to voting rights and desegregation during the civil rights movement to the reckless upbraiding of cities during things like white flight and redlining all the way to affirmative action and even some of the backlash that we've seen to the current movements that are speaking against racism such as the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, if white people, even white Christians and those in power, consider the interests of blacks and the marginalized people in this country in the realm of things like law and economics and housing and health care, even if Christians just spoke out against these types of evils that we've seen in racism, what would our country look like? Would it be closer to the ideals of equality expressed in the Constitution or further away from them? Another example that I think about that comes to mind uh, is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, where Jesus tells this parable of the persistent widow who kept coming to this unjust judge for justice against her adversary. And so in the parable, Jesus says that this, this judge was unwilling, but eventually, for the sake of his own interests and wanting to preserve his reputation, he eventually gave justice to this woman. And I saw this as a picture of interest convergence, because notice that this, this woman who was being oppressed and, and who was marginalized, she only received justice against her enemy when her interests and the judge's interests for her cause aligned. And so the question that I ask is, if Derrick Bell is right, if Derrick Bell is correct, has the white power structure in our country been like this unjust judge that's only been motivated by its own interests in deciding to give even some measure of justice and equality to black people that ultimately we deserve? Uh, and so I think that's a good example of, of how interest convergence isn't something that Derrick Bell just came up with or created, but maybe it's, a, it's something that he's identified as a product of this fallen world that's always been ex in existence, that says something about power dynamics, no matter who it is that it's for or against. So lastly, Bell's thoughts about the permanence of racism, they might come as a surprise if, if you've listened to uh, the predominant narratives about a post-racial, post-civil uh, post, uh, post rights, race-neutral, and colorblind America. Uh, and so hearing Bell's views about the persistence and adaptation of racial patterns that are seen within our systems, 
They might sound like it's something that's pretty easy to dump on or dismiss, right? He said that his perspective about the permanence of racism is, is easy to, to reject or, or try to refute. But I think that we should hear him out. Again, whether you agree with him or not about racism's permanence, the reality is if you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus, you should recognize unquestionably the permanence of sin in this world and even sin within ourselves until Jesus makes everything new. And so it's entirely within the realm of, of possibility that if the racial patterns that Derek Bell identifies are true, then it's certainly possible for these patterns to persist or even remain in place indefinitely. Certainly there's been, and hopefully there will be continued progress and change by God's liberating power and through the efforts of people who are committed to pursuing justice. But I think Derek Bell's point is that whether or not there is, this shouldn't stop the courageous and righteous efforts of justice-minded and racism-hating people to defy racism at every turn. That should be our posture. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a Christian, you most likely, or you should be, fighting your own permanently indwelling sin in the same way every single day, harassing it, defying it, until the day that you die, because that's one of the main identifiers that you are who you say you are as a follower of Jesus. And so whether or not you might believe racism is permanent in the way that we see it in laws and structures is what Derek Bell is talking about. Perpetual defiance against sin, even sins like racism, is a good and healthy posture to take. Uh, the question is, will we, will we take that posture? And so again, while, while critical race theory has become such a misunderstood, uh, loaded, and even an inflammatory term these days, especially within circles like white evangelical Christianity and politically conservative circles, we'd be doing a great disservice to ourselves if we maligned, ignored, or overlooked such a brilliant thinker uh, like someone like Dr. Derek Bell and what he has to say about racism in America. And so again, whether or not you agree with his conclusions, hopefully that you can see that this is a man of integrity, experience, faith, and knowledge. Uh, he's got so much to offer and his perspective is one that, that we have to grapple with. All right, so thank you all for coming through. Subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating or review, let us know your thoughts. Uh, we'll, we'll jump into some of these parables from Dr. Derek Bell next time on the Space Traders podcast. Uh, join us again. Hopefully the next episode will be out in the next week or two. All right, peace. We'll see you later.